Welcome to the What's In My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and thanks for checking out the audio format of our show. If you want to watch these episodes, check us out on YouTube. Just type in youtube.com slash what's in my head podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as I bring you a piece of your childhood each and every week. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button here as well as on YouTube. Make sure to check us out on all social media platforms. That's where I'll ask you, the fans, to drop a question or two for our upcoming guests. You can find us on social media by searching at In My Head Pod. If you're digging the content, leave us a rating and review as that helps us and other fans of pop culture find us. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the What's in My Head podcast. Today I'm joined by storyboard artist Ben Jones. Ben, how are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks. How are you? Oh, fantastic, man. I'm really, really excited because you're probably the first person that I've had on here that goes pretty deep when it comes to nerd culture. And what I mean uh-huh. by nerd culture, comic books and Ninja Turtles and all that other crazy shit. So before we get to, you know, how you got into doing what you're doing for a career now, when did comic books come into the picture for you specifically? Do you remember? Um, I don't because they came in early enough that I was not really forming memories yet. I do know when I was a kid growing up in uh, Kitchener, Ontario in Canada, um, we lived close to a, a comic book store um, that was called Now and Then Comics. It was like the first comic book store in Ontario. It was close enough that my dad would jog there and he'd take me with him. Because um, he was into, he would buy like um, like all these like sci-fi and uh, fantasy comics. Like there was a comic called Weird Worlds. Yeah. It was like an adaptation of Edgar Rice Burroughs stories mostly. Um, and you got like first issue of Star Wars when it came out. Um, but then, you know, I could get something for me while I was there. So it would be like mostly Justice League of America, like the satellite era was big for me. Um, so that's that's how I got into comic books and everything else sort of flowed from there. Because, you know, that turned into me sitting on the floor and drawing, copying Dick Dillon's drawings and stuff, you know. And then it all just spread from that. The rest is history, as they like to say. Um, yeah, pretty much. When, when you were sitting down there as a little kid drawing and stuff, do you remember what characters specifically stuck out the most to you? Yeah, um, for some reason, um, there was a, a hero named uh, the Red Tornado who was a member of the yep. Justice League. Um, uh, for those who don't know, he's like the android superhero. He joined the team roughly around the time I was reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked, I think I liked him because he kept um, kept exploding and then coming back like three issues later, like nothing was wrong, you know? So I think... Um, that tenacity sort of resonated with me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sidebar for just a second, because you said blow up. And, and when I was looking through your uh, your IMDb page, uh, it listed on there the Iron Giant. Uh, yeah. That is hands down. Uh, you can see him in the background uh-huh. right there. And I usually don't wear tank tops because I have no muscles. But uh, the first tattoo I ever got. Oh, wow. Was of the Iron Giant. Uh, it's my favorite animated movie of all time cool. that movie still makes me cry every time he says superman every time he flies off but uh you know blowing a piece we'll get right back to comics man actually let's stay on comics for just a minute and we'll get back to to the iron giant um, okay so would you say the red tornado was your favorite superhero or did you just love drawing him because of all those just explosive movements and everything like that what was it about um no i mean i think again his tenacity um also he was sort of like I don't know if he was written deliberately that way, but he sort of became for me like the entry character to the Justice League. You know how there's always like a character who's like someone for the audience to identify with. In Red Tornado, he was like always self-conscious about bungling up. You know, he was new to being a superhero because he was like, you know, like a year old. He was like freshly created, you know? So I think 
I think, you know, he did for me what Robin was supposed to do in like the Batman 66 show. Like I never connected with Robin in that show for some reason. Like he was created for kids to have an entryway into Batman's universe. And that never worked for me. But Red Tornado, for some reason, he clicked with me in the Justice League. You know, I did, I did like his costume. Like I, I got, uh, hold on a sec. Here, I've got this. This is the one I painted when I was about four. That's oh, the Red Tornado. Cool, man. Yeah. And then I've also got, I bought this when I became an adult. It's the first, the first ever appearance of his new costume. So that was, that's the original art. Um, so that was like, that's a costume I just spent hours just drawing over and over again as a kid, just drawing him like flying around, you know. Now, does he still, I don't want to say speak to you because it's such a pretentious word, but does he, does he, do you still have, that fondness for that character as you've gotten older or have you kind of dovetailed into a different character? No, I mean, yeah, he still does. I mean, um, he's not in the comics much anymore. He comes in and out depending on which writers like him and which don't. But I did, um, I did get a chance to work on um, a couple of episodes with him in Batman, the Brave and the Bold. Yeah. Actually previously got to work on him in Justice League. So um, I did like a little bit of freelance storyboards for Justice League. Uh, and I had like a fight scene with Red Tornado and I was like, I want to blow him up because that's what that's what Red Tornado was all about. He's about getting blown up. So um, that wasn't in the script, but I pitched it to the director, Dan Reba. And he was like, sure, you got to run it by James Tucker, the producer. Right. So I run it by James and James is like, oh, you can't blow him up. We already blew him up this season. So I was like, yeah, but he blows up all the time. That's his thing. And he was like, no. So I couldn't blow him up. So then I get on to Batman, the Brave and the Bold. Right. Um, that's a team up show. Uh, so the first Red Tornado episode, he definitely blows up. And it was like supposed to come to me. Like we had a rotating director. We had like three directors. So we'd rotate who does what episodes. I was supposed to get the Christmas episode of Red Tornado blows up. But the script wasn't ready on time. So they gave it to Brandon Vietti, who, you know, he did a great job of blowing up. It was very emotional, almost. It was not quite Iron Giant level, but it was really good. Um, but then finally, eventually, I did get like another script where Red Tornado blew up again. And this time... James, who was the producer on Justice League and the producer on Brave and the Bold, third time, he finally gave me the chance to blow up the Red Tornado. And, um, you know, since then, I've sort of like, that sort of, for me, fulfilled what I wanted to do with Red Tornado. So now I'm okay with it, you know? Yeah. So I still like it when he shows up in the comics, but I think, you know, I still like him as a character, but I think I'm not as into him anymore because I finally exploded him and I got, <laughs> got sort of a sense of fulfillment already. So... With that being said, man, you go from a little kid drawing that, that painting you showed me, and then you get mm -hmm. become an adult, you get some original art, and mm -hmm. then you finally get to blow him up. What was going through your mind working on your favorite character for millions of people to see? What was that feeling like? Do you remember? Uh, unfortunately, I think it was kind of anticlimactic because it was like, you know, you're drawing it and you've got deadlines and it's just you're focusing on like, I got to just you know, make this a good explosion. And it's all comes down to like technical stuff like that. So I wouldn't say there was like a big emotional catharsis to it. It was just like, when it was done, it was like, okay, I'm going to reorient my life around something else from now on, I guess. You know? I mean, I guess that makes sense. Cause I, I mean, I've said it hundreds of times on this podcast. I'm pretty sure the fans are tired of hearing it, but, I, but my day job, I cook for a living. Sure. Right? So I do it because the paychecks keep coming. Mm -hmm. They keep clearing on time. And I just he keeps showing up as soon as they bounce or as soon as they don't clear, don't show, don't show up on time. I don't show up. Right. So that's kind of how working, you know, works. However, 
as a young kid, I always wanted to be a chef. I always thought it was the most, I always thought it was the coolest thing in the world. It, it all started with Emerald Live. He held the entire audience captivated. It was like a magician up there just doing magic tricks. And I thought it was the craziest thing in the world. And then when you get to work in that industry, right, you're like, oh man, this, the hours suck. The pace sucks. Uh-huh. Uh, the family time is non-existent. And then you go home and then you get to cook for friends and family. And there's a whole point to this story is why I'm bringing it up, but you get to cook for friends and family. And then you start to feel like, Oh shit, this is what that magical moment when I was a little kid felt like now, obviously you got to blow him up for your job. Right. But do you think, or have you drawn him at home just for fun, free time type of thing and kind of felt that magic again? Or do you think that's kind of said and done its piece? I haven't really. I mean, um, I kind of, I've got like a block in my brain now where I just, I can't really draw unless I'm being paid to draw. You know, it's, it's just <laughs> that thing where like, because any, any moment that I have free time to draw, there's probably some work that's overdue that I should be doing. Yeah. So it's like, if I don't do that, then my brain won't let me enjoy drawing. It's, it's kind of sad. Um, I did do like a little Inktober thing like last year where I did like just, I did Red Tornado on like a little post-it and um, that was, that was fun. But um, so I could I could probably tap into that again. But I do think like similar to I think what you're talking about with um, cooking becoming a job, but you're still finding joy in it when you do it at home. I think I do have moments like that when I'm when I'm working on an animated show where I'm drawing and it's like, you know, a lot of the time it's like there's a sort of slog of like this has to be done yesterday. I got to get it done. and I don't want to do it particularly. But then there are a couple of moments where you're like you get into it and it's like you see a part of your brain sort of steps back and says, Oh yeah, I get, to, I get to do this for a living, and it's and it's great. Um, and again, similar, I think to you, like for cooking, cooking with family. For me, it's like, you know, I don't really think too much about how it goes out to thousands of people, but like when when my peers see it and they have comments on it, you know, I get to I get to show like something that's like funny or exciting to like my coworkers, like that that really gets me excited. You know, I think it's um, there was a thing. Um, I think it was in one of. Chuck Jones's books where he talked about like how, or maybe it was a Bob Clampett thing. I can't remember. One of the old Looney Tunes guys, they talked about how they kind of just made the cartoons for each other. And like the audience was sort of, they got to see it and that's great, but they really just wanted to make each other laugh. And that was, that was goal number one. I think it was the Chuck Jones book. I think it was Chuck Amuck, his autobiography. Cause uh, that makes sense. I haven't read it, you know, since last year. And that was the first time I read it. So it makes it sound like I've, I've read this thing and I'm well-versed in Chuck Jones, which I'm really not. But I, I read it last year. I went through an entire, once I started doing this podcast, I went down like an entire rabbit hole. I wanted to see like what animation came from. And it all started with uh, Leonard Moulton's book uh, uh, of Mice and Magic. Um, and then it kind of like dovetailed into like, all right, let's read about Tex Avery. Let's read about Chuck Jones. Let's read about all these names I've heard sure. and seen. And I don't know much about them, but I want to learn more about them. Um, and and it, it goes the same thing. You get you get the same adulation for cooking for friends and family. And when you cook for somebody that does this for a living and you, you're like, holy shit, man, this is good. Or like in your case, holy shit, that was so damn funny. You're like, oh man, I still got it. Or, oh right. man, this is, this is what it's all about. It's making fun or not making fun, excuse me, but it's having fun essentially at the end of the day. Um, and going, going back, right. So, you know, you start drawing little red tornado. When do you start noticing like, Hey man, I'm pretty good at this. I think I should turn this into a profession. When does that light bulb kind of kick off? You remember? Um, I think I had to go in a little circle on that. Cause what happened, you know, the first thing was like, you know, you go to school, other kids see your drawings and they're like, Hey, that's a good drawing. And you're like, Oh, okay. 
this guy thinks I can draw. Then I look at other kids' drawings and, you know, not to be a jerk, but maybe, maybe I like mine a little better, you know, and then you go through school and like kids ask you to draw stuff. So you get this idea in your head that, okay, I can draw pretty well. Um, but in my teens, I had this idea in my head that um, I didn't think it was really possible to make a living drawing, you know, um, don't know where I got that attitude. It wasn't anything that my parents put on me, you know, like a lot of artists will say, oh, my parents were like against me being an artist. But my dad was like, he was totally supportive. He was like, whatever you're going to end up doing for a living, you're going to have to do it for like 40 hours a week. So it's better if you like it, you know. So I would I would say things when I was a teen, like, eh, maybe I'll get into like archaeology or computers or something. And he'd be like, I thought you like to draw. And I was like, yeah, no one's going to pay me to draw. And he's like, you should you should draw. So I spent a year at the University of Waterloo, like learning computer graphics. And I flunked out there. Um, and then somewhere in there, I decided, oh, maybe I should try. Maybe I should try drawing for a living. And so I ended up signing up to go to um, Sheridan College in Oakville, where they have an animation program. Um, and that just clicked instantly. So, um, so that was, that was where, that was where, you know, I decided, well, whether or not it pays, this is what I'm doing for a living, you know, and, uh, and then that led me down here. Now, what was it like once you finally got to school with people that wanted to do the same thing that you wanted to do? And you all had that common interest. Was it, I mean, obviously in any profession, you're going to have, I don't want to say adversaries, but you're going to have people that you're in competition with like, oh shit, he did that. I got to turn in something even better. Like you're, you're pushing each other to get better. Right. What was it like when you're going through animation school, was everybody into the same shit or how was it? No, I think, um, I think the competition, at least in the animation field is really healthy. Like, you know, you'll see someone, you see someone who does something amazing and for a moment you hate them because you're like jealous, but then <laughs> immediately after you're like, I want to be able to do that too. And, you know, you start talking to them about it and like, what did you do to do that? You know, how did you, how'd you figure out this move? You know, that kind of thing. Um, it, but for me, like arriving at Sheridan college, it, it was a moment where it was like, cause in high school, it's like, there's one or two kids who share your interest and that's it, you know, cause I was a nerd growing up and it was just like, even there, it was just like, I'm into this particular thing that nerds are into. Like maybe I'm into like, I'm into comic books and this guy's into Doctor Who, but that's close enough and we'll, yeah. we'll converse, you know. But when you, get to, when you get to college and everyone's into animation, it's just like, it literally is the entire class. Like everybody's into the same stuff you're into. It's like, it's, it's like finding your tribe, I guess. It's just really, for me, it, at least it was. It was just like, and they might still be into a different animation thing. You know, some of them are into like, so there are a lot of anime kids or a lot of, you know, kids who are like, I only like action stuff. And other kids who are like, I only like the classic, you know, golden age animation. But but they were all into animation in a way that nobody at my high school was. So it was, it was for me, that was like, that was like coming home. It's, it's funny when everybody tries to, you know, break off and find their tribe, their people, right? You got to find somebody that's got some kind of similar ground. That way you guys can, you guys can cohabit. You guys can talk, right? So you can build a relationship and all that shit. And you brought up a really good point that, that I didn't really think about. I've had a lot of animators on here. And I don't know why I've never thought about this question, but you posed it and you threw it out there in, in the format of just like, hey, man, there's all these different types of animators. What did you gravitate towards when you went to school? And what was some what were some of the shows that you absolutely loved growing up as kids? Were you that classic? Obviously, we know you do a lot of stuff with the superheroes. So that's lending to the comic book, uh, you know, the comic book geek nerd, whatever you want to call it in you. But what was it that you stuck to the most during school? Do you remember? Yeah. Um, well, I think going back, like when I was a kid, all of my cartoon viewing habits were shaped by the schedule because Cartoon Network wasn't a thing yet. Yeah. So it was like on weekdays, it was like Challenge of the Super Friends, which just 
amplified my superhero stuff. But then on Saturday mornings, it would be like, there'd be like the new cartoons, you know, like, um, I don't know, I think it was like Smurfs and stuff like that at the time. And I'd sit through those. Then it'd be like a little sort of like dead block where it was Scooby-Doo reruns. And that's when I would draw the most because I would ignore the TV. Um, and then, then they'd play like an hour and a half, two hours of like um, classic Bugs Bunny stuff. And then my, you know, I'd stop drawing and I'd watch. Yeah. Um, so that's the stuff I gravitated to when I got to college. Cause you know, that was the stuff the teachers were capable of teaching. Um, cause their background, they were mostly all sort of Nelvana, um, professionals. Like they, they'd worked on, you know, like inspector gadget yeah. and stuff like that. Um, so they lent, they leaned more towards that comedy stuff. There was actually in school, like a very, at Sher in Sheridan at the time, there was like a lot of discouragement towards anime or action adventure stuff. Like a lot of students would come in and be like, you know, I don't know. It's just they taught what they knew and they didn't know that stuff. And there was this sort of um, there was at the time. I mean, you know, things have sort of merged together as anime fans start putting their stuff out in American cartoons and um, Japanese artists are influenced by American cartoons as well. I mean, they were originally, but we won't get into that. But um, in school at the time, you know, a lot of students would come in with a head full of anime and the teachers would try and knock it out of them because there was there was sort of a different approach to the way things were animated back then yeah. with the, the Japanese style cartoons and the American style cartoons. Um, it's just, I guess they just wanted to encourage a more like, um, I want to say like artisanal approach to animation. Like, um, cause you know, the, the Japanese stuff at the time and it's, it's got, it's grown from there, but the Japanese stuff at the time was considered by our teachers to be very much sort of, um, assembly line factory kind of stuff, you know. Um, I remember they had a lot of a lot of criticism of the sort of shift and trace method they used for animating, where it's just, you sort of like, instead of trying to figure how the shapes move in 3D, you sort of just like move it a little bit like okay. paper cut animation, then draw it again. Yeah. Um, but I think they weren't seeing like the full scope of, of even the anime that was available then, you know. Um, I don't know, it's, it's um, It just, it just wasn't their focus, I guess. Uh, and I think to be fair to them, they did have a lot of students who would come in and be like, you know, I want to make the next Akira. And um, they were just not up to it at the time. You know, the students that is, um, I, I know I certainly wasn't, but, and still am not, but. It's wild when you think about like, cause I, I watched anime before COVID. So when COVID happened and they told everybody to go home, um, kid and I were just at home because the wife was the only one that had the job that was open. I worked, like I said, work in a restaurant. They shut all restaurants down. You know, she's open and she's the only one running her stores. So, you know, it was mainly the kid would go to school for three, four hours because it was the end of, uh, by the time they shut everything down, it was really towards the end of uh, the school year. They had like six weeks left or whatever it was. So they were just getting on there saying, Hey, I'm still here. They're like, Hey, read this chapter. And you're pretty much done. Right. They didn't know what was going on. And, um, so we, we just started watching stuff together and it was cool because we got to bond over a lot of cool shit because he watches his shows. I watch mine. Um, you know, he doesn't think my cartoons are good. I don't think his cartoons, you know, it's the whole, you know, mine are better than yours type of thing. Right. Sure. That generational gap. And uh, I was just flipping through and then I'd hear everybody talking about my hero, my hero, my hero, my hero. I still go and get my comics every Wednesday when they come out. So my comic book guy at the time, he's no longer there. Unfortunately, he went and got a grown up job is what they say. Um, his name was Sam. He would say, hey, have you checked out my hero yet? Have you checked out my hero? And after like six straight weeks, I'm like, dude, shut up. If I watch one fucking episode, will you leave me alone about it? He's like, yeah, just watch one. He was like, however... You know, I wouldn't watch the first six because Deku, he's a little whiny and most people can't get past. Have you watched My Hero, by the way? I haven't, no. 
Oh man, please! Don't. I have a lot of friends who are into it, but I haven't. You know, there's just there's there's only so many hours in a day, so I'll get to it. Get to it. Hundred percent. Hopefully, you can get to it. It is one of the most well written, well animated. Just the manga itself is fucking phenomenal. Um, okay. But I'm sitting there, I'm watching it, and like I said, my anime was very limited. I watched Dragon Ball Z growing up, and sure. you talk to most kids once they once they go down either the Western animation or you know they go down the anime route, they're like, oh, Dragon Ball Z ain't because it was mainstream to them. So like everybody knows Dragon Ball Z. It's not real anime. You're not watching real anime. So then I was like, oh, man, if I'm not watching real anime and that's not real anime, which this is cool, then I don't want to fucking watch anime. And I just I'll just stick to the cartoons I like. Flash forward 10, 15 years, whatever it was. And I'm watching my hero. And I watched the first episode. I'm like, holy shit, this is like the Avengers. Yeah. But Japanese form. Right. And I was doing the I was doing the dubbed over because I don't want to have to read. And then my kid, he reads he reads quite well. But I just I just pause it every 10 seconds to explain to him what was happening. Um, so we just watched it in dub. And then I had so many of the voice actors that I absolutely love that I've been watching on e- other shows. And it was mainly Chris Sabat, which did Piccolo in Dragon Ball Z. If you ever watched Piccolo, he also did Vegeta. I was like, this is this is it. This is my show. We binged that entire, I think there was four seasons out at that time in the first two weeks of COVID. I'm like, holy wow. shit, this is good. But there's moments in there where you're, your hands are on your head. You're like, holy shit, this can't be happening. They cannot be doing this with this character. Please, please, please do not kill this character. Like there was, there was a couple times where I'm starting to break. Like I'm getting tears and my wife's like, she's like, you know, this is fake, right? And I'm like, I need positivity right now. I don't need negativity. I need you to pray that this guy isn't going to die right now, right? She's like, it's right. fake. And I'm like, ah, right? So if you might but, escape. Yeah, right? So it's, right. It, it's just a phenomenal show. And I saw somebody had made a comment about current anime now or, or animation and anime, like trying to coexist. And they're like, it's crazy now. Everybody's seeing anime for what it really was 20 and 30 years ago. All these deep stories, these overarching stories that go in seasons to tell. And now you're starting to see that influence the up and coming animators of the last 10 and 15 years because they, okay. those guys and gals were fans of this stuff. 20 and 30 years ago. So they're trying to implement what they see into it. Um, has there ever, you know, w- with you being in animation for so long, have you ever seen just, I don't want to say like a takeover, but just an influence like anime on something like animation, just oh, yeah. as much as it has? Yeah. I mean, Teen Titans was a great example of that. Cause um, I mean, Glenn Murakami was the producer of that show. He came off of Justice League, which had a very, you know, that was Bruce Timm's uh, show primarily. And it was, it had a very Western animation vibe. When um, when Glenn was tasked to create a, a Teen Titans show, you know, he 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 did very consciously brought in anime elements to bring it something different from the Justice League show because he, you know, he grew up on a lot of anime. Um, I actually watched uh, in addition to like, you know, Challenge of the Super Friends I was, as a kid, big on Battle of the Planets, yeah. um, which, you know, I know it's not it's not the it's it's been altered and redubbed and changed in a hundred ways. But, you know, I got what I got because, you know, there weren't anime conventions for me to go to when I was six. Yeah. Um, maybe there were, maybe I didn't know. But when, when, um, when Glenn was doing Teen Titans, you know, um, he brought it, he very consciously brought in that anime flavor because that was what he loved. And it's what a lot of the, the people on the staff loved. Um, and, you know, we, we were watching a lot of the current anime shows like Fully Cooley was a big one. Um, uh, that was just like a little six episode thing that was out at the time, but it was, it was, you know, we patterned a lot of stuff um, on that. Um, but I think that was, that was just something that was happening with that generation of animators anyway, just because there was less of a stigma to showing your anime influences, especially in the action adventure side, um, just because so many of the people around you. And again, for most of us, we're just making stuff 
to, to get that a guy in the next cubicle to react, you know, yeah. and if the audience comes along, that's great. But if they don't, you know, then we're fired. So, um, <laughs> but you know, if the guy in the next cubicle is like, yeah, I grew up on battle of the planets too, then you can like slip a little battle of the planets reference in there. He'll get it. It'll slip by the people who are paying for the show and it becomes part of the lexicon of American animation from that point. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, from, from, I'm not saying that's the, that's the point that started because they were like anime influences in, in Batman, the animated series and stuff earlier than that. But, um, but that, I think that was like, um, that was definitely a, a point where like a conscious decision was made to put anime influences in an, Amer an American show. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad they do. Cause like I said, there's, it's such a, I don't think there's a cartoon out there for everybody, but I do think there's an anime out there for anybody and everybody. If you like cooking, there's one out there. I, I've been, I've been referenced, like I'll pull up topics of just stuff I'm interested in. And then my friend, he's super deep into this. She's like, you know, there's an anime for that, right? I was like, it sounds like that, you know, there's an app for that, that guy that, right, right. Killed, you know, 10, 15 years ago. That's what it sounds like with anime, but going back to you, man, uh, when you finished school, what was mm -hmm. your first job in the industry where you got to put your first credit on that paper? Um, well, what happened was when I graduated from school, um, there was a recruiter from uh, Chuck Jones Film Production okay. who came up and interviewed a bunch of us. Um, and he, you know, he sort of took off back to LA. And I was like, okay, well, that was, that was fun to have the interview, good experience. Yeah. Um, then I went, um, then I was like, oh, well, I got to get a job. So I went over to Nelvana, uh, applied, you know, did a test. Um, and I ended up working um, on this show called Wildcats, okay. which uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's, um, Long it's, um, it's, it's, yeah, it was sort of like, um, it was very consciously patterned after the Saban X-Men show um, uh, based on Jim Lee's comic at the time. Um, I got hired on that as a character designer, but in the meantime, you know, the uh, recruiter at Chuck Jones Film Productions was, he called me up and said, hey, we want to bring you down for an internship. Um, so I had to like go to the people in Novan and say, can you guys kind of let me go? Cause I got this opportunity down in Los Angeles to go work for Chuck Jones. Um, and they were nice enough to, so I ended up, you know, that job only lasted six weeks because they were like, all right, you, you go do that. That sounds like fun. Um, and then, uh, then I got, I got down here. Um, and that was, that was my first LA job. And I've been down here ever since. Um, what was that first day? Like not, not so much with the, the Wildcats, but when you walked into that production company for Chuck Jones, what was that first day? Like, were you like, holy shit, this is imposter syndrome. I don't know what I'm um, doing. Am I good? No, I mean, the, the great thing was like, we had sort of like an airlock built in because it was an internship. Like, so it was consciously set up to be like welcoming to like new people. And that was, that was all Maurice Noble's doing. Cause he was, um, he was working at Chuck Jones. He was working with, he's worked with Chuck Jones for like a lifetime. Um, and he's like, he's like the guy who's basically responsible for the way cartoons look. Like when you think of a cartoon, you look to a cartoon that's largely because of the stuff that Maurice Noble did in the Looney Tunes cartoons. Yeah. And he, he was like, he was pushing Chuck to like, you know, we're, we're making new Looney Tunes cartoons. Let's bring in some young folks so we can train them in the stuff that we've learned over the decades. Um, so we were brought in, there were three guys from Canada, me and two other guys. And then there, there were like six guys from CalArts here in, in Los Angeles. And we all, we all started on the same day. We were all sort of brought in. So we had like this sort of little, little group of people who were all new to it at the same time. So we had like a support group, I guess it was. Yeah. Um, but it was, it, you know, there was very much like a stars in the eyes kind of feeling when you first step in. I mean, 
the actual studio itself is as underwhelming as it can because it's just like you know we were on the 13th floor of an office building and they had like you know a bullpen set up with you know there's like animation desks that were better than the ones we had at school but you know it was just like you know like sort of like brown carpet and beige walls and like it, it wasn't like screaming cartoons at you when you stepped in the front door but you know there were the animation discs that you were going to draw on and you know behind that one door was Maurice Noble and you know behind the other door were like professional animators who've been working in the industry for 10 to 20 years which seemed like a lifetime at the time you know so yeah there, there was there was sort of a little bit of the magic to it but all in this place it was about as you know drab and exciting as an office can be now, I, I can't remember when he passed, but was Chuck Jones still around at that point in time or he had, had he already passed? No, he was around. Um, he wasn't in the office on a day to day basis because he lived in Costa Mesa. Mm. And um, you know, he had a whole a whole um, business going of selling his original art. Yeah. So, I think, you know, the Looney Tunes thing was like something that he could do remotely. So he did. Um, so he wasn't around all the time. Um, Marisa was there every day and he was, he was a great guy to talk to. Um, and Chuck, he was great when he came in. Like I did as part of the internship, I did get to do, I animated a scene with, um, with Barney bear, not like for professional stuff, but just to give me something to do. And I got to get like face-to-face -face critique from Chuck on that. And it was great. Um, I don't remember like 90% of what he said. Cause it, it was like the blood rushing through my head the whole time. Cause it was like, Oh, Chuck is looking at my animation. You know, but I do remember that I did like a little smear that he liked. And that was just, that was just life validating right there. So you brought up Maurice a couple of times. What's your favorite Maurice story? Do you have any? Um, no, I mean, he sort of, um, I mean, he sort of hung out with more with the, like the internship had like six students who were there as animation interns and then three who were like design interns. So we mostly hung out with the design interns. Um, I do remember um, Maurice, he was like, in his, you know, early to mid eighties at the time, but he, um, he had like a, a massive appetite. So we'd always go to like the, the Warner brothers lot to eat and yeah. he had like a whole taco, taco bowl salad. And it would just be like, just all gone. Um, but, um, yeah, he was just, um, he was just very, um, he was just very open and welcoming to all the, uh, to all the young artists. I just didn't take advantage of it as much as I should have. Now, looking back on that now, what are some of the things that you learned that you still use today? Um, I don't know. I wish I, I kind of, I kind of wish I had learned more. Cause I remember like Bob Gibbons was there for a little while at the time too. Um, after the internship had ended and we got hired on as full-time artists, I remember, um, they brought Bob, Bob Gibbons in. He was like one of the, one of the guys who was around at Looney Tunes way back to the forties, maybe even late thirties. Um, he was a layout artist. Um, I remember, I did, um, I did a scene once where for some reason I had to like trace one of his layout drawings, like just to put it on like pan paper. Cause it was on, not on pan paper or something, something technical like that. And, um, and like, I just remember tracing it and thinking, wow, this is amazing. And it's still like that tracing that I did was like, it's still the best layout drawing that I've ever done. Cause it was just like me just going over this, this, the lines that this guy had spent 40, 50 years learning how to do. Um, but I didn't like, I didn't absorb any of it. Like I couldn't figure out how did he do that? Like, why is this line so amazing? Like the proportions, like the proportions like spoke to me in a way, but they didn't like speak to me in a way that was like, here's why we're so magical. You know, it was just like, it was just like, 
it was just like appreciating a magic trick without figuring out how it's done is what it was. So um, I think, you know, um, more, more than the art stuff, I think I learned um, from, from Bob and Reese, just like the attitude that they had about art. Cause like, again, these are guys like Bob, Bob, I think was like, he, he was the young guy, but they were still like, you know, they're still so excited about drawing, you know, they still had this curiosity about like what, what new stuff they could bring to a production. And like, you know, when it was time to like do the research for the, for the backgrounds, like they were big on like finding new stuff that they could incorporate into the, into the backgrounds. You know, these are guys who you could argue that they perfected the look of cartoons like 40 years prior. And they're still like looking for new things to do. It was amazing. It's wild when you meet somebody that is a master of their craft, yet mm -hmm. they don't act like a master of their craft. They're still like that student. They're still trying to absorb. They're still trying to learn. They're still trying to find the best way to do something, even though they've perfected that way. Yeah. It's just something something magical, uh, you know, about that. Um, now, how long would that internship last for you? Um, I think it was about 10 or 11 weeks. It wasn't very long because um, what ended up happening was, as I said, they were making new Looney Tunes cartoons at the time. Um, and so all of the interns who stuck around were um, given the opportunity to become in-betweeners on the new Looney Tunes short. So that's, that just transitioned right into that. Um, and then I was there for about a year, maybe a year and a half after that. Uh, so, but it was, you know, it was, it was always designed to be 10 weeks and it was, this is rare. It was a paid internship too. So we got to actually like be able to afford to like live in Los Angeles um, as opposed to relying on our parents, which, you know, could have possibly been an option, but I'm glad it's not one I had to, you know, rely on at the time. Now I've had a few different, I've, I haven't had a layout guy or gal yet on They're uh, They're coming on, I think in September, I've got a couple of people, um, that I've reached out to. Cause I, I love, I always assumed before I started reading about what you guys actually do, one person does everything. They do the coloring, they do the character design, they do the layouts, insert whatever, with the exception of doing the voices and the writing. I figured an artist does everything. And I didn't realize until I started talking to a guy that worked for uh, AKA Cartoons named Corey Toomey, character designer. And then I'm pretty sure you've worked with him because he's worked on Teen Titans and Teen Titans Go, Chris Battle, character mm -hmm. designer, right? Yeah, yeah. So they broke down, you know, all the different aspects of, of each individual job for an animator or an artist, right? So both of them said that they spoke, like character design spoke to them specifically because, you know, when you're growing up, what do you draw? You draw Batman, you draw Robin. You don't draw Gotham City or the Blimps. Maybe you do, but your main focus is drawn Batman. So for you specifically, man, what spoke to you about being a storyboard artist, vice, a character designer or a painter or background layouts and all that other stuff? Um. I kind of, well, for me, I kind of bounced around from stuff to stuff. Like um, I started um, with my focus on just the animation because, um, you know, I did, I did sort of start from the same sort of place that the Chris Battle started where it's just like, yeah, I just want to draw Batman. Um, but the, the character design experience I had on Wildcats was sort of like, um, because I wanted to match the look of the comic really closely, it just became, okay, here, trace these, these action poses for the characters. And that, that wasn't very exciting. Um, but the animation stuff, I think, um, once they started doing that at Sheridan college and they started making things move, like that had like an extra thing to it. Like that, for some reason that, that was more exciting to me because it's like, 
that's like where you can see the magic trick because you're doing it yourself. Like you, when you're flipping the paper and you're watching the movement, it's like, wow, look, that thing's moving. And you know, it's just, it's just stuff that you scratched on paper yourself like 30 seconds ago, but you can sort of convince yourself that it's like, you know, if you do a good job, there's like, there's like weight and motion to this stuff. Um, so that's, that's what I responded to initially. Um, what got me into storyboards was just financial reality. Um, Cause you know, I, I did animation at Chuck Jones. Uh, then I, I got into features for a little while. I worked on um, Cast No Dance, Quest for Camelot and the Iron Giant. Uh, and then that sort of, that dried up for a lot of people, especially me, because, you know, I wasn't like, I wasn't the top guy in any of those things. So, so I had to get, um, to stay employed in animation, features were sort of not available anymore because they weren't, they weren't making as many 2D features anymore. Um, so I ended up getting a job in television and, you know, that's all animated overseas. So I had to learn to do something that they do here. Um, my first job in television was on um, a show called Mission Hill, where we were doing, we were doing uh, character and background layouts here, which is, I think, sort of different than what you're thinking of when I say layout before. Um, but it, it all gets confusing. But it was, so we, we started, I started doing, started as a layout artist on that. And then I started doing some storyboards on top of that because it was like, I got promoted to assistant director and the assistant director is expected to board a certain amount of work on the show. Um, so my first storyboard was for an episode of Mission Hill that never aired. Um, because we got, you know, we we did 13 episodes and they ordered like five more storyboards, but they never went to production. So my first storyboard will never be seen. Uh, sadly, it's not very good though. Do you get to keep uh, it? Or, do you get to keep it, or is that something they keep in the vault? I would have had to like make a photocopy of it and smuggle it home, which I've done on other productions, but I don't think I had the foresight to do it at that time. Um, so what do but they then, do with the storyboards then? If they oh, don't, use, what do they do with the storyboards if they don't use them? Do they toss them or? Well, in that case, it was it was a case where. Um, they weren't certain if they wanted to go ahead with the production of more episodes. So they sort of took this halfway step of like, okay, write the scripts and do the storyboards while we decide if we want to go into production on these. And eventually they decided no, but in the meantime, the scripts were written and the storyboards were done. So, so I, you know, it's basically like storyboarding for a show that's never going to happen. I mean, the, the intent of the time, of course, was that it would go into production, mm -hmm. but it just, it just didn't happen for financial reasons that yeah. were under control. Um, but then, so yeah, having done storyboards, I, that clicked with me as well. Not, not hundred percent the same way animation did, but I just liked, I just liked the storytelling aspect of it. Cause that took me back to when I was a kid and I'd be, you know, sitting on the floor. Cause when I would, I'd start by drawing the red tornado, but eventually I'd be like, okay, now I'm going to draw the red tornado fighting somebody, you know? And then it was like, I'd be drawing giant crossovers of like the justice league meets the Avengers meets star Wars meets star Trek, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, but you know, it's, it's mostly battle scenes when I'm a kid, but then once I start storyboarding professionally, it's like, oh, I can get into all these like you know, character moments and all these storytelling beats and like all this sort of, you know, more intricate stuff. Um, so yeah, I think I just started storyboarding because it was like part of the other job that I was doing. And then it was like, oh, I started responding to that and seeking out jobs where I, would, where I could do that. Now with what you've done and where you've gone, you know, you started out, you know, you did a little bit of character design, you did a little bit of this, you did a little bit of that, you know, you're starting to bring everything kind of in together, right? The whole piece of the pie is really starting to be shown here. Obviously you stuck to storyboards because that was, you know, a sense of gratification for you, but you've also moved up the ladder in your directing, you're producing. I'm sure you've written correct, right? You've written an episode or two. Kind of. Um, I, I wrote like, um, I wrote like a uh, one little sketch that shows up in a, a brave and the bold thing about um, shark safety. And uh, 
I think there was one episode of Brave and the Bold where we just did a bunch of um, short stories without any scripts. And I just did one, one of those. So I just, it's, I, to me, it's not really writing because the script was like, I just boarded it and then I made the script out of the board. So it's like, it doesn't feel like writing. So my writing has been kind of limited, but I do get to like, as a director or producer, I do get to sit in on the story meetings a lot of the time and like help break the story and like shape what the story is going to be. So I'm not, I'm not writing it because, you know, you know, crafting dialogue and story structure, that's all stuff that I kind of don't know. So, but I'm helping shape the story. So it's, it's, it's in the it's, right direction. Yeah. I mean, sort of like the higher you go up the ladder, the more the jobs sort of get sort of nebulous and mixed together. And it's like, you're doing a little bit of everything anyways, you know? So if you had your choice and obviously the higher you go up the ladder, the more money is going to be. So we can take that money factor just as, cause it's a hypothetical question at this point, sure. we can take the money out of that. Did you feel more gratification from storyboarding or do you feel more gratification? Do you feel better at the end of the night? You put the head on your pillow like, shit, man, I did a great job today as directing or storyboarding. If you had the choice to pull the trigger, say, I'm going to do one of these two, which one would you take? It would be directing. I mean, the ideal situation would be someone would just give me like four years and I just do everything myself. You know, I mean, not everything. Like I kind of would like to, I would love to do like a project like some of the Japanese directors where it's like the director storyboards, the entire thing. Like that would be, that would be, I'd get shot for saying that with the gun to my head thing, but that would be like, if I could do both somehow, um, if I had to do it again, it's directing, but uh, sorry, go ahead. How many storyboards go into, so if you got a 22 minute show, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. So how many storyboards go into a 22 minute show or does it differ between show to show? Like the number of drawings? Just as far as like a storyboard goes, because obviously, what is it like six to eight panels per storyboard? Um, well, I mean, you can you. The reality is, you can break them up any any way you want. Nowadays, mostly storyboard artists um, end up producing like uh, animatics, where they they because we're 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 mostly working in um, a program called Storyboard Pro, where you can take your storyboards and turn them into like little movies as you're working on them. You sort of export a movie instead of the old thing where you would export. Like on Teen Titans, it would be the storyboards were all printed out on paper, like three panels per page. Yeah. And, you know, it would be like about this thick for an episode. Like, um, Holy shit. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, nowadays it's, it's, it's good for the trees. You know, we don't use any paper. It just comes out as like a, a digital file that's probably not timed out properly. So we have animatic editors who fix that. But it's, it's, it's just like a movie file at this point. So it's... Um, yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that because it's... Oh, yeah, no, it's fine. Because like I, I've seen, you know, I've never been a part of what you guys do. I'm just a huge fan of what you guys do. Sure. Um, but going back and just like looking at videos of old pitch ideas on you know, YouTube, you can go in there, you can type anybody, pitch whatever episode. You go up there and you see some people just put them on their walls. They go and just, they look like serial killers, essentially. They got push pins and they're popping them all over the place. And you've got a yeah. laser pointer going point A to point B to point Z. It's going to end over here. Um, and you see other people where they've got like actual poster boards with little frames and then they, they do everything and then they explain the transitions in between. Like, oh, he's mad over here and yelling, he's choking him out, but he's doing this because X, Y, and Z. Um, with that being said, and we, 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 we're gonna get back to Iron Giant, I promise. We're gonna get to a little bit of Teen Titans before we go. But when everything made that transition from pen and paper, pencil and paper to digital, was there a huge increase in workers' production? 
obviously you have to learn all the new programs and all that other shit. But you specifically, when you went from pencil and paper to a, a digital program at this point, did you see, you know, that change as far as productivity goes? I don't think there was. Um, one, of the, one of the things that, <clears throat> that I think is a difference between like putting stuff on the wall and, and not doing that is um, like the, 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 the storyboards you put on the wall are generally for like um, cartoons that are going to be animated in house, if that makes sense. Because yeah. like, um, you know, like the old, the old Looney Tunes stuff, you'd see, you know, see photos of like, you know, Chuck sitting with Mike Maltese or Ted Pierce, and they'd be like looking at the storyboards on the wall. Those storyboards can be, can be very, um, can be very limited in what they're showing. Like they can just be like, you know, here's, here's a frame, Bugs Bunny's in, he does something, you know, he throws a pie at Elmer Fudd, Elmer Fudd or something. If you're, and if it's being animated in house, you can just hand that off to the, to the layout artist and you can flesh it out and then it goes to the animator and then it gets animated and you can watch them every step of the way. With a lot of the television productions, especially the action adventure shows, um, the animation is going to be done overseas. So the storyboard has to work basically as the, as the layout as well. So that means every, every action has got to be posed out. So there's going to be more panels. At that point, sticking it up on the wall sort of becomes <clears throat> counterproductive because it's like by the time you've covered one wall, that's like, you know, it's about 30 seconds of the show and you've still got another 20 minutes left. Well, so, um, so those that generally they, they produce animatics or they just, you know, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the meetings would just be like, we'd have the, the storyboard in like a thick binder and we just flip through it and go through it like that. Um, but I think with, with storyboard pro, I don't think it sped anybody up because, you know, there's the added step of like, um, of, uh, of putting it into the into the time frame, yeah. Um, and some 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 people are just like I'm just going to dump it there and let the editor figure out. Some people they they trim the fat. Well, some people it's like they get feedback from it, so it's like you know you can see if a pose is working because you can just time it out right there. Because you know sometimes you you know you can draw a cool action pose and then you send it to the editor and it's like well we don't have time for him to like flip in the air three times before he lands. That's going to look ridiculous. He's going to look like a like a helicopter or something. Mm -hmm. You know. So I I think. Um, any trade-offs in like efficiency have been sort of offset by like the fact that the program can do other things. And then you're tempted to play with those toys while you're working on it. That makes sense, right? You got to play with all the bells and whistles, right? Sure. Um, so going back to, like I said, my favorite animated movie of all time. Now you said you weren't the head honcho on those <laughs> three movies you put on, but what did you do on uh, um, Iron Giant? Well, in each of those three movies, I was like um, the last animator hired. So I would get like a lot of the sort of the scenes that are just connective tissue, you know, like um, on Iron Giant, uh, I did a lot of stuff with the soldiers who are running around at the end, you know, like little tiny, little tiny guys in green and they shooting their bazookas. And, you know, I get to put a lot of, a lot of, a lot of stuff into that that people don't really notice. Yeah. Um, we did get to do a, a scene where like Hogarth introduces himself to Dean, you know, it was just a some quick little dialogue scene, but it was, it was fun. Um, but yeah, um, you know, it's, I don't want to diminish um, my experience, I had a great time on the movie, you know, yeah. um, I just, I just don't want to like steal any valor or anything like that. That movie would have been, would have been just fine without me. Like it was, it was, it was absolutely like Brad Bird's vision on that film. And, you know, we all felt when we were on it, that we were part of something special, but again, I'm just saying I was a very small part of it. I, I'm still proud of the work I did on it. I'm very proud of the movie, even though again, would have been the same without me. 
everybody's got their part, man. You were a part of that movie, no matter how small, how big it was. And I appreciate what you said, because there's a lot of people, but especially, I don't want to say especially in your industry, because I've, I've heard war stories about your industry as far as like who takes credit for what. Oh, I know I made this. I'm the dad of XYZ, right? And it happens in everybody's profession, really. It's not just animation. But like I said, just since we're talking animation, I hear horrible stories and comics sure. too. i'm pretty sure you being a, a a huge comic book guy you know the story of bill finger and, and bob mm-hmm. you know how much how yeah. much bill finger put into that and he did not get credit until 40 50 years after he died 40 years excuse me 40 years after he died with batman versus superman and he finally right. got the credit he was deserved right so not a lot of people know that story i've told that story a couple of times on this podcast before so i won't go too into detail with it but Nonetheless, man, like I said, that movie is still one of my favorite movies of all time. But transitioning to something you did have a huge part in, man, was Teen Titans and the Ninja Turtles, right? Uh Obviously, I'm a huge Ninja Turtle fan, as I showed you. I've got them all over my arms, and then I've got them all over my walls here. But I was just not – that's the lie. I was not just as big a fan of Teen Titans as I was Ninja Turtles. I loved Teen Titans. I'm Uh in in love with the Ninja Turtles, man. It's just one of my favorite franchises of all time. what was it like working when you got the call? Was it just something you, you you put out there? Did you freelance first and then they brought you back on for Teen Titans or how'd that work? With Turtles? No, no, no. With, uh, we'll start with Teen Titans and then we'll finish oh, up with Turtles. Well, what happened with, with, um, with Turtles was um, uh, by this point in my career, I, I, there was like a, a small group of people that I sort of knew. Um, uh, this would be like Derek Wyatt and Gabe Soir and Matt Danner. Um, and they were all working on this show called Mucha Lucha um, at Warner Brothers, which was a show about wrestling where we weren't allowed to show any wrestling because kids could imitate it. So what they needed was they came up with this idea. Instead of wrestling, these characters are going to do these special moves where they like turn into bulldozers or pinballs or something. Kids, something kids can't imitate. Yeah. And uh, so we'll, we'll hire someone in-house to like animate all these special moves. And that was me. Mm-hmm. So Derek and Gabe and Matt, they all recommended me. I got hired on that. And I met um, I met some new people while I was there, including Ciro Nielli, right? And while we were working on Mucha Lucha, we were just down the hall from Justice League, which is where Glenn Murakami was developing Teen Titans. So he was told, because Justice League was still in production, okay, you're gonna develop this new Teen Titans show. You can't bring anybody with you from Justice League because we need them all to stay there. So he had to basically create an entirely new crew with people they'd never met. And um, Derek and Ciro were like hanging out with Glenn all the time because they were excited about um, what he was doing with Teen Titans. Mm -hmm. And so, Glenn was like, well, maybe you guys can be part of my new crew. And Cyril was like, well, what about this guy, Ben, over there? He's animating all this stuff from Mucha Lucha. Maybe I could bring him on as a board guy, right? Um, and I'd done some storyboards by that point, uh, but they'd all been for comedy shows. He'd been for like Mission Hill and the Oblongs and for Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law. So Glenn was like, eh, I don't know. Is he, a, is he a, like a superhero guy? Because, you know, he didn't know I had spent my entire childhood drawing Red Tornado on the floor of my parents' house. So so Cyril was trying to convince him. And this is something, so I'm told, this is all third hand because I wasn't there. Bruce Tim was in the room and Bruce was like, just give him a test. So what happened was Glenn gave me a a storyboard test, which is where they give you like a script and you just, you know, you just do a fake storyboard. And there was no Teen Titans script yet. So I did like, he gave me a couple of script pages from the first episode of Justice League where Green Lantern and the Flash are fighting these alien guys. Um, and I had to do that as a storyboard test just to show I could do superhero action because, you know, nothing in my portfolio hinted at that at the time because my career up to then had been strictly comedy. Like the closest I'd come to superheroes would be Harvey Birdman, which was a comedic take on it, you know. Um, 
So I did the test. Glenn liked it. And that was it. I was storyboarding on Teen Titans from that point on. Do you have a specific episode or a specific? Now, I hate asking these questions because trying trying for you guys to remember, you know, something 20 years ago and depending on who I have on here, 30 and 40 and 50 years ago on a specific episode. So that's why I never bring up specific episodes. But for you, I got to imagine you, you've worked so long with the Titans from Teen Titans to the new Teen Titans. And I I got shit for saying this when Chris Battle was on. I absolutely love Teen Titans Go. I think it is one of the funniest shows. I know it's not made for me. Right. Who's giving you the shit? The the viewers or not Chris? No, not Chris. No, no, it was the viewers. Like the okay. first comment, because one of the, the, the things I do is I pull a teaser out of sometimes mm -hmm. it's one, sometimes it's two, depending on you know how long the episode goes and if I find something that I really, really love that I want people to get excited for. Um so I pulled the episode where Chris was talking about how he got into art. And I just, for somehow, I think he, uh, the, we started talking about Teen Titans Go. And I said it was a phenomenal show. I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. But I got to imagine that you've had, you know, countless storyboards throughout the entire series, throughout all three series at that point, really. Um, but do, do you have one from the original Teen Titans that you absolutely love that you storyboarded? Yeah, um, for me... Um... Like the big, the big breakthrough board for me was um, I did the, uh, the chase sequence in Mad Mod. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, um, we had these things that we, we ended up calling them romps where it would be like, um, it's just like a, a musical montage where it's just, um, the storyboard is usually kind of vague about what goes on. And the, the storyboard just goes fucking crazy with it. Um, so that, Ciro gave me that one for this episode, uh, this Mad Mod episode. Um, and it was just, it was just a chase sequence where um, the Titans were chasing Mad Mod all through his, you know, evil school. Um, and we'd already, we'd, we'd compiled like a list of stuff that we were using as influence, like Thief and the Cobbler and um, Yellow Submarine, just trying to get into that sort of mod era, that sort of like 60s era that Mad Mod came from. And because Malcolm McDowell was the voice, you know, we were referencing Clockwork Orange a lot. So it was just, I, I was given this chase scene and, you know, I spent a lot of time on it. And then it was like, a couple of days before the deadline, it was like still a lot to do. So I just, I, I did like this, this double all-nighter. I worked for like 53 hours straight on this storyboard. I was just like, yeah, I was, I was just like hallucinating by the end of it, but it was like, it was all going <laughs> into the board. Right. And it was just like, I think it, it, it was like, but it was, it was important to me to get it all in there. Cause I had like a whole bunch of stuff I wanted to do, not enough time to do it. And it was like, the only way I'm going to be able to do it is to like, take these three days and like make five days out of them, you know? Um, and it, and it, it, I think it worked. Cause like that board for whatever reason translated more directly to the final animation than any board I've done before or since like, you know, there's always stuff you board stuff and it gets misinterpreted overseas or they, you know, they have a different take on it or they just don't quite get it. This one, it was just like everything I wanted to happen to animation came back almost exactly the way I envisioned it in the board. It was like, it was like, it was just like if I had gone over there and animated it myself, which, you know, of course I can't do. But um, so that was that was the board for me that was like that was like my sort of like guiding light for Teen Titans. Because it was like before that, I was sort of like trying to figure out what the show was and what my take on it would be. But after that, it was just like, you know, and it, it was like a thing, too, I think, where like a lot of the other people on the show were like, OK, well, Ben did that. We can give him other weird stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. With that, with that being said, 53 hours, that's a long, long, like I said, before we rolled, we just had our second child July 1st, right? So I took the entire month off. Well, that's August now at this point. Holy shit, man. Yeah. Just by. Um, I took the entire month of July off, right? 
And what I forgot from the first kid to the second kid, because it's been 11 and a half years since I've had a baby. Well, I haven't had a baby. The wife had a baby. Um, yeah. I was just there to, to help and coach along and do the best that I can and get screamed at and my fingers crushed. Um, but uh, I forgot how little sleep you get, uh, especially right after they're born. Oh, yeah. And I was up and she was up for about 60 straight hours. Um, we didn't sleep like anytime somebody came in the room and they were all nurses. They were, it was all great people. So I would get up, you know, what are you doing here? Not, not really, but I was just like making sure that they're okay. They're supposed to be here, that type of thing. Cause you hear horror, horror stories about people, you know, stealing babies and shit like that. Sure. And I was, I want to say flabbergasted, I guess is, is the best word I could put by the end of that 60 hours. And we actually got to sleep. And the first night we brought him home, he slept like four hours straight which I was surprised. I'm like, holy shit, if this is what it's going to be like every night, this is going to be the easiest baby in the world. And of course the next night he was up every 45 minutes. Um, but after that 60 hours, like it's crazy. You start seeing shit that isn't there. Like you start like having, I don't want to say having conversations because it makes you sound like crazy, but you're talking to somebody that is not fucking there. And you're mm -hmm. like, you're convinced it is right. Yeah. When you hear all of these crazy stories. Now, like I said, I know you're, you, you don't write you storyboard here, but you're a fan of Batman and, and um, oh shit, what's the name of the Scottish guy? Grant Morrison. He yeah. was known for, I think he's come out on record and said it. I think it was on a couple interviews where he would, he would drop acid, I believe, or take edibles, extreme doses. And then he would stay up all day. And then he wouldn't start writing when it came to Arkham Asylum, the book that he did until like two o'clock in the morning. And then he would just do everything. Then he put him in this re really weird way. Right. Did yeah. you notice going back and watching that whole animation play out? Right. For that whole story, but you storyboarded. Did it feel like, holy shit, man, there was something there? Or were you in a consistent flow state those 53 hours that you just I, put blinders up and just got the work done? I think, yeah, more of the second. Um, it wasn't like it wasn't like I looked at it afterwards and like, where did that come from? Like it, it all it all felt like because at that point, you know. I had been sitting with the storyboard for like four weeks. That was our schedule at the time. And like, I had ideas for what I wanted to do. I just was too much of a procrastinator to put it down on paper. So like th those 53 hours were like, just, just me like condensing the previous four weeks into like stuff that other people could, could see as opposed to just crap in my head. Um, I think I read um, Seamus Culhane wrote a book about animation. He was a, an animator. Um, do you remember the name of it? I'll read it. Um, I can't remember what the name of the book is, but I think he only wrote the one book. So if you can find a book by Seamus Culhane, that's the one. Um, but his, his method, he, he, he worked on the Looney Tunes for a brief while. Um, but uh, his method was he would come in on Monday, right? His deadline would be Friday. He'd spend Monday to Thursday eating peanuts, just sitting there and thinking about the scene, right? And then on Friday, he would just crank it out. Like that was, that was, his, that was his approach as detailed in the book. Um, I might be embellishing a little bit, but I think it's roughly that. And so, um, I mean, it's, it sounds like the worst possible work habits possible, but the, those four days are time he's spending thinking about what he's going to do on Friday, you know, and he's, he's basically planning it all out in his head. And Friday is just the day that it gets down on paper so that someone else can enjoy it, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's basically that I sort of, maybe I took the wrong lesson from that book, but that was my process on a lot of the storyboards <laughs> that I did. It was like, I'll just sit and thumbnail and, you know, I'll spend like 90% of the time I'll spend like the first week just on the first shot, just, just cause I'm trying different things and going down wrong avenues and like getting nowhere. And it's just like, if that was my process for the entire, you know, start to finish, I would never get anything done. But the, that, that rush at the end, 
that's where that's where the magic happened you know because you get to a point there where it's like okay i could either sit and think about this or just whatever comes out of my pen the first time is what's going on the screen yeah. and it's like it's got to be good and like that pressure somehow makes it good i, I can't explain it i mean i can imagine like if you're if you're um if you're in the kitchen and you've got like you know like five orders coming at the same time and you're like all right it's you just you just got to figure out how to make like you know i got to make a i got to make this here and this here and like get them all played at the same time you know that's it's the same kind of thing like the pressure forces you to perform pressure does two things it either busts pipes or it creates diamonds and i'm out of yeah. pipe so it's going to create a diamond and the I, I won't say that i haven't bust some pipes along the way like you know <laughs> so there, there have been times where it's just been like the deadline's passed and i go to the producer and i'm like i need another week you know that that happens but well, a lot of the time diamond yeah i gotta i gotta imagine that it's a lot like your industry is a lot like mine where it's that whole analogy where you're like a duck on a pond on top mm -hmm. of the water, completely calm, right? Yep. You don't see any ripples. You don't see any waves. You don't see anything happening. You just see the duck coast along, but under that water, you see those duck feet going, mm -hmm. right? just, just yeah. barely kicking it on. So that's what it's like working in the kitchen. Really. You're like, yeah. all right, stay calm. Don't throw anything. Don't yell anybody. Don't tell anybody to fuck off. Just, just put your head down. Just get this work done, and everything's gonna be okay. You can cry in the walk-in later. Is what you, what you can do. And um, it's like you know, you're making a mental inventory for later. You're like, okay, I got these sauces ready over here. Yep. Now I got, I got to get the, you know, got to make sure there's side orders ready and all that stuff. You know, yep. yeah, I get it. It's, it's like, it's just so the, the duck is just Seamus Callahan eating peanuts, and, and it's all the same. It's all the same thing. Yeah. I'm gonna look that book up as soon as we get off this call, man. And I'm sure. Gonna, because anytime anybody, anytime anybody comes on here and they uh, they talk about a book, I instantly got to pull it up, especially when it comes to animation, because I feel like I'm behind the curve. I'll be 32 on the 13th of this month. So mm -hmm. I, I feel like I've missed at least 25 years worth of, of knowledge that I could have been learning along the way to really help me prepare for the profession I want to do, which is this uh, eventually one day. Um, but as we start to wind down here, man, I could not get away. Once I saw that you worked on the 2012 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and of course Rise as well. I've got a bigger connection with uh, the 2012 series than I do with Rise because sure. during that 2012 series is when I was on my second or third deployment. I can't remember which one. But when I came home after that in 2014 was when I started watching that show because I'd been pretty much gone for the two years when it started airing. And mm -hmm. my son and I needed something to bond over. And it was two shows really. It was that show on Nickelodeon, which was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Jesus Christ, I had a stroke. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then the other one on Cartoon Network was the regular show, right? Those were our two shows that we just absolutely love. We absolutely bonded over. Um, and that show is credited for getting my kid into karate now, right? Okay. I tried when I yeah. was younger to get him into the, my, my turtles. Um, you can kind of see them up there um, more towards the end, but was the Jim Henson productions for the 1990s movie, the, the, the original, that, that, um, the live action first movie, that was my introduction into both pop culture, comic books and Ninja Turtles. Like once that happened, I was like, there's no fight. And I'm a huge, I'm a huge basketball guy too. So I'm like that hybrid nerd where I like a little bit of sports, but I like a lot of bit of nerdy shit. Right. So, um, it was pretty much that hands down hook, line and sinker. What was it like? Were you a turtle fan to begin with before you started working on the show? Or did you kind of morph into a turtle fan when you started working on this show? Not really. Um, because what happened was, you know, when the turtles came out in the comic book shop, like I missed that train entirely. Because what happened was um first issue came out, it was an instant hit. Um, maybe maybe it was maybe it took a little while, but by the time I noticed it, 
yeah. it was like the first issue was like 20 bucks you know and it was just you know for like a black and white comic and you know all my comic books were like dollars in every color you know maybe they're like 35 cents at the time and maybe it's not that long ago anyways by the time i noticed that the turtles existed it was like the entry fee was steep it was like 20 bucks for the first issue next week i go back it's like 100 bucks you know that's how fast that took off so i missed that train and i think um you know by the time the cartoon came out i was like no nah, i'm i'm not it's not for me but um but the 2012 show that was um that was produced by Ciro Nielli, who i'd mentioned earlier he is a big turtles fan like he's he's um that that's that's the stuff he's a couple years younger than me that's the stuff that hit him at the right time you know so his goal, like when he started making it was like, I'm going to do it right. Cause like, you know, all the cartoons up till then it sort of lightened it up a little bit, mm-hmm. which, you know, it seems like that's the kind of expectation that a lot of, cause you know, you look back at those original comic books and yeah. they're, they're, they're designed as like a, a parody of daredevil basically. So they're, they're really dark and gritty compared to what ended up on the screen. Um, but you know, to zero was like, the comic books he wanted to try and get those on the screen as much as he could as much as nickelodeon would allow him to so i actually did do a little bit of storyboards on the um on the episode that he used as a pilot which was um the one with baxter stockman uh and then i went off and did other jobs for a couple of years um then um i was just looking for work around the time when sierra was sort of getting overwhelmed on teen on teenage Mutant ninja turtles so he brought me in in the middle of the fourth season as like an additional supervising director um, so by the time I was hired onto that show, they, they already had like three and a half seasons under the belt. Right. So, so that was like, I wouldn't say like, you know, it was, it was a, it, it, they already had a system in place. I just had to like be there and sort of like help carry the load. So, um, so I think I became more of a fan of the turtles along the way. There's still something I don't understand about them. Cause like, there's a, there's definitely an appeal there that I can't like facts just bear it out like people are into it lots of people love it obviously you love it oh, yeah. there's just there's something about the alchemy of it though that doesn't connect for me because like i get you know they're teenagers they're mutants they're, they're ninjas they're turtles these are all cool things the way it comes together that creates magic for a lot of people in a way that i just can't get it. like I, I get exploding superhero robots but for some reason ninja turtles just doesn't have that same sort of emotional resonance for me but, you know, a lot of the people who were on the show, that was their, that was their jam. So it was like, and sometimes it's good to have someone on the show who's not, who's not actually a fan of it. Like that was a thing that, um, that happened on Teen Titans with, um, with Glenn and his story editor, David Slack, is that David Slack was not a Teen Titans fan, but Glenn was. So he'd have to constantly explain Titans concepts to David. So David was like, he could bring this outsider's perspective and sort of force Glenn into this position of like, okay, I have to explain why Bumblebee is cool now. Yeah because he's never heard of Bumblebee. And there, there was a similar dynamic on Batman, the Brave and the Bold, because like James Tucker is an old school comic book fan, Michael Jelinek much less so. So it was like, you know, there was a point where like James Tucker had to explain to Michael Jelinek, like, okay, there's this thing called the haunted tank, right? And then there's, but sometimes there's this moment where like the guy who doesn't know suddenly just like the light clicks and they're like, the haunted tank, that's brilliant, you know? Yeah. Um, but then... Um, so yeah, for, so for me, Teen Ti- or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was it was it was a thing like I could appreciate all the stuff they were drawing from because you could tell reading the old comic that you know Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird were like fans of like old school horror and like all these like kung fu flicks and like that stuff I can tap into, you know. Yeah, I, I'm the same way when it comes and this is I get so much heat for this 
because everybody calls it sacrilegious. I am not a fan of Star Wars. I, I get it, right? If yeah. everything was like The Mandalorian, right? I absolutely love that car, or not cartoon, excuse me. I absolutely love that show. Everything about that show, I absolutely love. Yeah. If everything was like that, and what was the one where it was a part of the new trilogy um, where it's the Death Star essentially blowing up and they're all left there on the island. Everybody essentially dies. Vader comes back. Oh, um, yeah, that's Rogue One. Rogue One. Yeah. I absolutely love that movie too. Um, but like I, when I started watching Star Wars, the first, the original three, I think I'm, it's the same thing with you with the Turtles. I think I missed that, that, that age level or whatever huh? it was, that fascination with that with that genre because it just it went right over my head i'm like oh yeah it's a cool movie and you know growing up and i always it's called trolling but i've got my my best friend shane right diehard star wars fan it is it is his lifeblood when it comes to anything i just i can't get into it but i love shitting on him for liking it because <laughs> it's what it's what it's what friends do right you just shit on each other like oh yeah, yeah. and i always take it up a few notches just to see if i can make him red in the face and stuff like that so I get, you know, everybody's love for Star Wars, but it's the same boat as you. It's like, I missed that, that, you know, that peak or that point in time where you're supposed to kind of latch onto that type of thing. It just, it went right past me. And like I said, it was all downhill after Ninja Turtles. Way. Well, uphill, really. Well, huh. downhill, if you ask my wife, because you look in this room and she's like, Jesus Christ, you need to get rid of this shit. <laughs> but uh, it's neither here nor there, man. Um, I had a lot of fun during this chat, man. Obviously, we couldn't talk about everything you've done because your resume it's pretty fucking extensive, Ben. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but you've done a lot of shit. And I don't yeah, mean you cool. shit. <laughs> I don't mean you shit as in a demeaning way. You've done a lot of stuff, Ben. A lot of stuff us nerds have been really happy to see, man. Um, so if you had fun, I'd love to have you come back on and we can go deeper in detail. We'll pick, you know, a couple shows. We'll throw it out sure. there and see what they want to do or see what they want to pick. I'm pretty sure it's going to be Teen Titans because once mm -hmm. I started going down this road, I did, I realized there was a rabid fan base for Teen Titans. But Teen Titans is probably in one of those tier lists where when it comes to just fans in general, you've got some like real hardcore ride or die people. I mean, it's, yeah. it's like, I don't want to say it's to the level of Star Wars as far as popularity, but as far as rabid fan base goes, that original Teen Titans is is what Shane's lifeblood is to Star Wars is to these new fans these days. Um, so I'm pretty sure we can go pretty in depth and detail about that one because I'm pretty sure you had a great time working on that one. Um, but nonetheless, man, I really thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time for me. Uh, where can people go and find you if you if they want to see what you're working on? Or what do you work on? Can you talk about anything you're working on as far as like, oh, man, yeah. check this out. It comes out in a little bit. No, it's it's, it's been announced. Um, I'm working on a, a new show called uh, Samurai Rabbit, the Usagi Chronicles, which is uh, a spinoff of uh, the Usagi Yojimbo comic book. Yeah. Uh, Stan Sakai has been doing for like 35 years. Um, so we just did a we just did a Comic-Con panel that... Um, that's been you know it's up on their youtube page so anyone who's curious about that can check that out um i don't i'm not very good at promoting myself but if anyone's curious i do have a twitter account at uh it's at idiot style all one word um <laughs> that's actually that's a titans that's a, a term we came up with at uh on the teen titans show where it was like there's like a, a way to draw that like sort of bypasses technique and just like gets to the heart of the idea and we called it the idiot style and just grasp onto that for a name for me um yeah um so um that's about it yeah i don't really my, my web page is like not been updated for 12 years so i think uh just find me on twitter if you're gonna seek me out anywhere i guess beautiful yeah. man i said i had a lot of fun 
check them out on Twitter at Idiot Style. Uh, and of course, man, I, I forgot you were doing Usagi because, uh, and Stan just won his first, not his first, excuse me. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's got a couple. Uh, I'm not really well versed as far as who's, who's won what, but he, he won his first, or I keep saying the first, he won an Eisner was last week, a uh, week before last, whenever they put out the, uh, they put out the awards and shit like that. So yeah, he's, yeah it's hard to keep track of all of Stan's awards because he's, he's won a lot and deserves everyone. Yeah, man. Uh, really looking forward to it. Cause I really like, I think it's, it's either IDW or boom um, is putting out Usagi. Um, yeah. So it's IDW now. yeah, yeah it, it's, I, that makes sense because it's in the turtle universe and IDW owns turtle because they're a subsidiary of Viacom. Right. So nonetheless, man, at all, it's all cyclical. Um, but man, uh-huh. then I've been Julian. This has been the what's in my head podcast. And this has been another piece of your childhood. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you guys when I see you. Thanks again for checking out the What's In My Head podcast. If you're digging what you're hearing, leave us a five-star rating. That will help other fans of animation and pop culture find the show. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, tell a friend, and I'll see you guys and gals next week. Good night.